Well, good morning, good morning. It's great to be with you. As Nathan said, my name is Gabe Coyle, and uh, yeah, I've been here for about 10 years. Um, my wife, Allie, and I have been here for that time, and we have given birth to three humans um, in that time. So I have an oldest daughter, Ava, who's seven, soon to be eight, or really soon to be 30. Then I have a uh, son who is six, Israel, and then my second son, Zion, is three and just turned three and is the size of a six-year-old. So it's been a really fun household and experience, and uh, they were super excited to go to church today when they realized today was Halloween and somehow, and Reformation Day, and they were just like, what does that mean for church? And we said, we're going to find out. Um, so they were pumped to go, I think, decorate cookies and eat a lot of candy, and I think my wife was excited for that too. So... Um, Hey, it's great. Just a little bit of tidbit about you. I mean, we're getting to know each other, right? This is my first time here at the Shawnee campus. Um, one little tidbit about me, you know, if we were to have coffee together that you'd find out way too quick is that uh, I love to run like a lot, like really far and to do it really early in the morning. So if you're ever looking for a running buddy uh, downtown, just shoot me a text and we can enjoy suffering together, okay? So that would be a lot of fun for me. But how about this? Why don't we, since we've just heard God's word read over us, why don't we pray in line with his promise that the Spirit would indeed be working through his word within us. Okay, let's do that together. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, trying God, you are at work. Through your word that was timely written for followers of Jesus in the first century, timelessly available for everyone thereafter, and still speaks timely to us today by the power and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And so we hold fast to the promise that the Spirit is at work where your word is proclaimed. We hold fast to the promise that the Spirit of God guides us and convicts us of the truth. And even though that hurts at times, it guides us to life and to deeper life and life and life abundant with you. So God, may we grow together as a campus May we grow as a church across the metro. May we grow as individual followers of Jesus and so know a deeper intimacy with you and with one another for the good of our city. I need your help this morning, God. Anything that's just absolutely ridiculous, may people forget. Only that what is helpful for edification and encouragement in your purposes and the centering on your son, may we be remembered in that way. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, there's a question uh, that I ask almost every minute of the day, either consciously or subconsciously. It's a question you probably ask when you pop your head off your pillow. Um, it's a question that, frankly, you can answer probably pretty quickly right now. And yet, it's simultaneously a question that we spend our whole lives trying to answer. And it's this. It's the question we ask ourselves, what do I want? What do I want? See, behind this question is the desire that drives us on what career you choose. Depending on when you retire and if you retire and if you want to retire is the question, what do I want? Even if you don't want a particular career, if you get into a career, it might be something that that career gives you. What do I want? Whether it's chasing a particular spouse, pursuing the current spouse you have. Maybe it's engaging in friendships or pursuing friendships. What do I want is the question that formulates our calendars, it formulates in our budgets, it formulates in our goals. Everyone in here is asking that question and answering it, and it's showing up in our lives. 
So here's what I want to do. Today's kind of workshoppy. You're probably like wondering, what are these little pencils and, and, you know, golf pencils and paper on your chair for? I want to invite you into something, okay? Because there's something important about us as human beings that is important to engage tactile kind of functions and learning and engagement of our own hearts. I want you to answer this question. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds, and I'm going to give some prompts while you're thinking about it. I want you to write on there, what do I want? And I want you to put the answer there, okay? Don't over-spiritualize it. Don't overthink it because that's usually your way of trying to avoid what you really want. So just, what do you want? And listen, this isn't like a trick where I'm going to like pull it up later and I'm like, ha-ha, this is so-and-so's handwriting, I got you. No, no, no. Okay, think about what do I want? What's driving you? What's at the center of your passions? Because listen, if you can't answer that, then you're going to be tossed to and fro by every whim of desire that sparks up. What do I want? And I want you to hold on to that sheet of paper because we're going to come back to this and we're going to be engaging that answer, that question throughout our time together. It's a question that's true of every human being. What do I want? And frankly, it was a question that was raised by these early followers of Jesus to which James himself addresses in our passage this morning. If you're new to Christ's community, we are in the middle of a series walking through Jesus' half-brother James' letter to a scattered church across the Roman Empire. This church formerly was anchored there in Jerusalem, and they were scattered amidst the persecution that came upon Stephen, the first martyr, and now they're strewn about, and they're trying trying to figure out how do they fit within these different communities across the Roman Empire and still follow Jesus amidst persecution and question and living out their faith. And what we've seen again and again that James's main desire is that he would catalyze real faith. Not so that anybody in here or anybody who is reading that letter would finally feel justified or good enough because they've got the real thing. No, 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 no. Instead, James's main concern is that we would have real faith that touches every nook and cranny of our lives in order that we might know God's joy in every nook and cranny. Because the counterfeit will never deliver what we long for. It may assuage for a moment, but it doesn't deliver that deep joy. And what we come to see again and again is that when real faith is actually pursued, when it's actually embodied and indwelled, it, it, it meets and it shapes everything it touches. And so when we come to this perennial question, what do I want? When real faith engages this question, what we come to see, and this is kind of our big idea for this morning, the thesis of our time, is this. Real faith wants what God wants. When it comes to our desires, when it comes to answering this question, what do I want? Real faith wants what God wants. Now, if you're anything like me, <clears throat> that leads to a host of other questions. Like, one, how do I know what God wants? It's a very pragmatic one, right? But then secondarily, well, what if God wants something that I don't want? <laughs> and then thirdly, if we're being honest with ourselves, why should I cave to him? Um, And here, I'm going to steal the ending of today's sermon, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. The reason is, God actually wants our best in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And when we submit to what He wants for us, we find our deepest desires realized and fulfilled in Him in ways that we can't even begin to grasp. So, as we're walking through our text, here's what we're going to do as we kind of begin to dissect or work through this desire, this want. What do I want? We're going to see why do we want what we want, and then we're going to look at How can we pursue what's best? And thirdly, what happens to us when we actually pursue God's best in our life? Okay? Does that sound good? So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. 
Now, interestingly, when you come to James, he is deeply informed by the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. This is like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and you actually find different quotations and the framework that he's engaging again and again comes out of this wisdom, as we heard it even read, right? The wisdom from above or the wisdom before, from below. This isn't just coming out of nowhere. This is anchored as James, a faithful Jewish follower of Jesus, who is his older brother, surrendering to him and seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has been pointing to, the Hebrew Scriptures. He sees Jesus as the true wisdom. Now, when we come to this, James takes up this mantle of wisdom literature and more often than not, when you come to wisdom literature, it's less of taking like a big bite out of steak and slowly working your way through steak, which is anybody else hungry? Doesn't that just sound good right now? Second service for me, I'm ready to eat, you know what I'm saying? So, but it's less like that, and it's much more like sucking on a Jolly Rancher. If you try to bite into it, it's going to mess up your teeth. Instead, you need to let the flavors marinate for a little bit. You've got to let it soak in, and that's what we need to do in this text, Okay. So first, let's look at why do you want what you want? And I'm going to give you just a couple examples of real life um, that we kind of navigate in terms of our own desires and pursuits. Some of you may have put on there, if you're in a particular job situation, you may say, I want this promotion that's coming up, right? That's just a real honest answer. The question I would say is like, why do you want that? Do you want that promotion in order that you can have a certain status so that finally your parents who had a certain perspective of you not being enough, that if you just get that status, that particular position, then finally they're going to love you the way you've always wanted them to. Or maybe if you get that, it's not about anybody else's standards, but the standards you put on yourself that finally if I get that promotion, I will have arrived and I'll finally be good enough for me. Maybe it has nothing to do with status, but pursuing that promotion provides a certain financial income such that you'll finally find a greater sense of security so you never have to ask for help like your parents did. And you remember the shame very deeply when you were younger, when your parents had to ask for help, and you never want that to be true of you or your family. Or maybe, just maybe, you want that extra cushion so you can take more trips to the Bahamas, to the Caribbean, so you never have to deal with the questions that are deep within your soul that are nagging you as to what are you doing with your life, and you don't want to address those. Instead, you just want to escape. We could also look at how we navigate with our kids. Maybe some of you are like, man, I just wish my kids would behave better. Why is that? Why do you want that? Is that because you have a friend whose kids seem to always behave really well, like Nathan Miller's and like with me, and I'm like, man, I wish my kids would finally behave as good as Nathan Miller's kids. Those kids just always seem to be so tranquil and so kind. They're asking me how I'm doing. I'm like, great. My son Israel goes and kicks him in the shins. I'm like, man, what's going on? I want to finally have my kids to be able to perform better enough so I can beat Nathan at something. What's at the heart of why you want that? Or maybe it's just friendship. Many of folks will come to church pursuing friends, but what we really want, if we're honest with ourselves, is an affirmation bot. You type anything into the chat, and all you want is, you're the best, I totally agree. Except for when it comes time to move the fridge. You want an affirmation bot that can help you move your fridge and has a truck that's handy, right? Like, that's what we maybe are genuinely saying when we want friends. Why do you want what you want? Do we know? And, and maybe even, why now? This is another important question to be asking of your desires. If there was a desire that was maybe a third-rung desire, but now it's become primary, or a desire that was non-existent, but now is central, what in your life has changed to make this desire central? And these are important questions to ask. And before we can answer them, James provides an important component in your decision-making matrix that should humble every single one of us. But James is going to provide for us is a deep understanding that what you want 
You never just want what you want. I'm going to say that again. You never just want what you want. We're always being shaped by someone else, and so are our wants. What you want is always in line with what somebody else wants for you. And herein lies the danger, and this is where we're going to lean in, and we can easily miss it as we see the wisdom on portray, portrayed here in, in James's letter. It's this. God's enemy wants to shape your wants without you knowing it. God's enemy wants to shape your wants without you knowing it. Where do we see that? Okay, right there at the beginning of James chapter 4, James is like, you guys are all in the midst of these fights. You're, you're literally warring with one another. Okay, maybe not literally. You know, people use that word literally all over the place. You're having all these major arguments with one another, and it's almost like you're murdering one another. You're coveting. You want specific positions, and you're jockeying for power, and you're longing to just finally get what you want, and you're chasing after your wants at the expense of those in the community. And James says, listen, listen, listen. That's all happening. But you're not alone in your wants. If you go back up to James chapter 3, Verse 15, we see this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You're like, hey, James, settle it down. That feels like a bit overspeak, right? Like, I just want this. This person doesn't want this, and we're having an argument. Wait, wait, wait. Then you go to chapter 4, verse 7, and out of the litany of responses to what he's saying here, in the midst of their quarreling and their desiring and pursuing these wants at all costs, one of the responses is what? Resist the devil. That's pretty heated. In the midst of these militaristic desires, James wants them to know they are not alone. You see, as followers of Jesus, we believe in a world that is much bigger than we often live in light of. Like what we like to think is that my wants are my wants, my decisions are my decisions, I'm the master of my own universe, I navigate my life the way I want, nobody else is to blame, no one else is influencing me, and often what we usually mean by that is my wants have also been baptized, because if that's what I want, then of course it's right. And James wants us to know that there is bigger influences in our life. For one, we as followers of Jesus believe that there is a creator God, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we don't see him. But much like Jesus says later in the New Testament, he says we can't see the wind, but we can see the way it moves the trees around, right? We see the way that the Spirit of God actually works in our lives, and we can see his handiwork on display. Well, God's not the only one who's engaged in the world that we often don't live in light of, that we often don't see. There is an enemy of God, the Satan, the adversary, the devil, the evil one, the leader of the demonic, whose primary goal is actually to destroy God's good world. And he is after what you desire. He's after pursuing your wants. Because listen, he comes after you and me in ways that are not explicit. He works best in the dark, in the hidden. And the way that he gets after you and me and destroying God's world is, frankly, it's ingenious. And Jesus, he pulls back the curtain a little bit on this when you go to the gospel accounts. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. And the outcome, the end game of these lies and the deception of the evil one is none other than murder. So his goal is to whisper lies with the end game of snuffing out the very life of you. And he whispers these lies. Sometimes they take on cultural shape. 
When you think of, like, for example, the, the laws of Jim Crow in the South that actually promoted this framework that someone who had a different pigmentation or a different cultural background was a lesser human, and it brought about a whole culture of death. So, yes, they can take about a, a, a cultural framing, but often they, they start and they begin and they work deep within us personally. Some of these lies are as simple as, you know what, Gabe? Every time I try to do something good, it shows up and it fails, so I'm just done trying. Well, why is that? You know why? Because, listen, every time I try to reveal a little bit about of who I am, when they finally see who I am, they walk out the door. Well, why is that? Because I don't think I'm lovable. And slowly the evil one starts eroding with these lies. You know what? Nobody's going to really love you for you. If they really saw you, do you know what they would do? They would leave just like so-and-so. And slowly the evil one whispers these lies down in the depths of our heart. And he's been doing this all the way back in the garden. This is why Jesus calls him the father of lies. We go to Genesis chapter 3. What do we see? The evil one, evil one slithers up to the first man and woman, and he talks to, to Eve, the first woman. And she's like, look at all these trees that we get to eat from except for that one. And he's like, well, why can't you eat for that one? Oh, if I eat from that one, then we're going to die. That's what God said. And then he responds like this. Surely you won't die. There's nothing that shakes us to the core much like a confident lie. Hmm? Looking you dead in the eyes and telling you something completely contrary to what you believe to be true. You won't surely die. Come on. That's ridiculous. You know what? God knows that if you eat that, you're going to become like him. Oh, wait. You seem so confident when you said that. <laughs> And you can almost see, interestingly enough, that's when the serpent stops talking. That's it. A confident lie and then even a cultivation of a different desire or a lack of trust in the character of who God is. And you can almost see her processing work its way out. Okay, if I won't die, and actually this fruit's going to make me like God, why would God keep this from me? Is he keeping that from me because he doesn't trust me? Or is he keeping that from me because he never thinks that I could actually handle that well? Because I think I would handle that well. Is he keeping that from me? Because he actually feels like I've never really measured up as his creature, so to actually measure up to him, is he actually keeping this from me? Because he doesn't want my best for me. Is this, so should I eat it so that I can finally prove him wrong, or should I eat it so that I can finally have intimacy with him because I can be like him? And slowly the lie begins to unravel in these deep sense of inadequacy, this fear of failure, this fear of being left out, and all of these pieces start swirling with an Eve until finally, if you look in Genesis chapter 3, it's right after that, suddenly the fruit looks different. It's after the lie that the fruit looks different. Suddenly, it looks pleasing to the eye. Suddenly, it looks like something that's going to make you wise. Suddenly, but it's after the lie. And that's how the evil one works. He whispers lies deep into the inadequacies of who we are. And slowly, those wants are birthed out of that so that we can finally quell those deep insecurities. He whispers lies in order to cultivate want that lead to destruction. This is the way he works again and again and again. And it's really important that, that James is writing to Christians. I, I know, because listen, I grew up in the church. It's like easy to say, you know what, this is what happens in the world. James is saying this is what happens in the church. Okay? This is really important. We as followers of Jesus can so easily fall prey to the lies of the evil one that actually cultivate distorted wants that actually can destroy a community. 
And to be clear, I'll give you one example. This one hit me fresh uh, when I was preparing for this sermon. You know, you have Jesus, and he's surrounded by the apostles, um, and, the math, and the gospel account of Matthew kind of lays this out. And, and Jesus says, who do, you, who do people say that I am? Right? And some people are like, oh, you know, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. And then Peter's like, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, way to go, Peter. Actually, it wasn't you. It was me, you know, by the power of the Spirit revealing that to you. So it's actually not, don't get too prideful, right? Congratulations, though. Good on you. Um, and then he goes on to describe, Jesus goes on to describe how the Messiah's main role in bringing victory and bringing about the kingdom of God on earth is not through military might and crushing his enemies, but it's actually the long descent of death and dying for his enemies and paying for their sin. And then actually in the resurrection, he's going to bring new life. And then Peter says, wait, 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 wait. No way. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. I didn't sign up for this. Where are you going? That is not the path to victory, Jesus. And Jesus looks Peter square in the eyes after he has confessed with his mouth and believed in his heart that Jesus is the Christ. And he says, get behind me, Satan. When we start believing the lies, like Peter was, that this is the kind of Messiah that Jesus had to be, one of conquering, one of military might, one of strength rather than of weakness and the cross and death and serving to the point of death even for his enemies, we're actually believing the lies of the evil one and furthering the lies of the evil one and carrying out the trajectory of the evil one. This is a warning word for the church, for followers of Jesus And these lies, if they are left unconfronted in our lives, will suck the very life out of us. They're like poison. They first begin in the deep insecurities of our hearts. They leak out to our wants. And then they ultimately, we're like these wind-up toys. We're like the, anybody ever those like cars for your kids where you can like back them up, right? You back them up a few times, then you let them go. We've got the real cheap ones that just like spin around and like run into a, you know, leg of a table or something like that. Um, That's what happens. We get all wound up inside because of these lies, spew out into these wants that ultimately lead to destruction in the community. And that's all, he, that's all he has to do is just wind us up, wind us up, pull us back. Because listen, we will all find what we're seeking. The question is, who's informing what you want? And are there lies from the evil one at the center of that follower of Jesus? Not just the world out there, but our brokenness in here. And listen, there are certain things that if we actually get them, will actually isolate us from one another and from God. There are certain things in our lives that there is a way in which we could pursue them that actually isolate us from one another and from God. And the evil one knows this, and the best work that he does is in secret. He doesn't want us to acknowledge his presence. Jesus often acknowledges him. Peter acknowledges him. James acknowledges him. The reason the evil one doesn't want us to think about the ways that he's informing our desires through his lies is that it's a lot easier to ignore that we're believing a lie if a liar is unbelievable. It's a lot easier to believe that we are not believing in lies if a liar is unbelievable. If my wants are just my wants and not informed by anyone else, then of course I can feel justified. But what if someone is stirring up deep lies within us that are informing our wants. So I want to ask you that question. Do you know why you want what you want? Look back to your sheet there, what you wrote down. Every single person in here is following a script for their life. 
There's either the script that God lays out in his world, word, that if you lean into his promises, even though they feel paradoxical or counterintuitive or even very weak, they're actually going to lead to life and life abundant. Or there's another script that's usually this economics of scarcity. I need to protect myself. I need to defend myself. I need to fight for myself. No matter who gets in my way, there will be a trail of blood behind me because I need what I need. There's only one or two scripts out there. Which one are you following? How does that shape your preferences and how you navigate community? Are there lies from the evil one of inadequacy? Are there lies from the evil one of fear of being rejected that are anchored in there? That come even maybe from past wounds of being genuinely rejected and being told repeatedly that you're inadequate. Because listen, how, how tight of a grip do you have on those? Like those wants. Why do you want what you want? And why are you so holding on to it so tightly? even when it comes to God talking to you about it. You know, C.S. Lewis, brilliantly in his book, The Great Divorce, defines or portrays hell with a lot of these biblical categories as a place where people constantly keep moving away from each other. They keep getting what they want, but they grow more bitter, more alone, more isolated, and they become their own torture chambers. They get exactly what they want. What does it profit a man or a woman who gains the whole world? but loses their soul. You will get what you want. But do you really, really want that? And do you know why? James wants our eyes to be wide open. And I want to be clear. Like, I'm going to give you a pastoral example just in my own life because this isn't something for you, and I'm, like, telling you this is something for us, me sitting under God's Word. I was uh, at a conference about two weeks ago, um, the Center for Pastor Theologians, um, focusing in on what does it look like to confront racial injustice um, from a biblical theological framework and these brilliant professors and pastors and theologians gathering together to say, what, is the, what does the text actually guide us in? And uh, one particular session, um, the, I'm going to get it right here, Reverend Dr. Pastor Charlie Dates was up preaching, and man, it was fire. It was on Amos 5. If you have not read Amos, woo, it is fire. Fire, Amos 5. So here's what's happening in Amos 5. You've got all these faithful followers of Yahweh, to some degree, gathered together for these temple rituals of worship. I mean, they're bringing in, like, the best calves, the best sheep. They are just slaughtering these babies like no one's business. It is just crushing it. Everybody's, the choirs, like, the harmonies are just on point. I mean, it's beautiful. It's glorious. People's hands are raising. People are surrendering. All these things. And then God says, I want none of it. It's like the perfect worship service. All the religious stuff, check the boxes. And the reason God says, I don't want any of that, is because there are the vulnerable and the poor around them that they continue to oppress on Monday. They bring together all the ways that they have excised all these resources from these folks and trampled over them in order to worship God. God's like, I see their blood on that money. And I don't want any of this. And then the, the pastor, Charlie Date, says, what happens when God starts going to your church? And I was like, oh, snap. But that's not even my point in sharing this. <laughs> I was sitting there and I thought, man, I want to preach like that. So anchored historically, theologically, interpretively, so well to the text that also challenges us today so that we don't look in arrogance to the past, but actually look introspectively today as well as critically today to the context in which we find ourselves. God, help me by the power of the Spirit to know that you're not dead, but you're alive and you're working. But then at the same time, I was like, why do I want to preach like Pastor Dates? And I knew this sermon was coming up. So I was like, well, I got to do this work too. 
This isn't for everybody else. Like, why do I want this? And I started writing out these questions, and I totally lost track of everything that Pastor Dates was saying thereafter, to be totally transparent. i got to go back and watch the, the sermon more uh, later. But I started writing out, I was like, do I want to preach like Charlie so that other people can awe at me like I'm awing at Charlie? And I wrote out, do I, do I want to see people transformed? Or do I want people to experience shock and awe? Do I want our church to grow so that people can say, hey, look at Gabe. Look how great of a pastor he is. Or do I want to see our church mature so that they can see how great our God is? And I'll be transparent with you. I didn't have a good answer for those questions in the moment. Because I felt the deep lie within me bubble up that has always been just something I've wrestled through. Like, Gabe, are you good enough? I don't mean in a moral category. Of course, Jesus paid all my sins on the cross, all that. But I'm just saying, am I even lovable? Do I have to be Charlie to finally be accepted by God? Or can I be me because of what Christ has done on the cross because he loved me? Man, I was like all up in my heart, my own business, in the midst of whatever else was happening. And I realized that I was starting to see even some of that like bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that we see earlier in James chapter 3 starting to show up in my own heart even in that moment. Even in something that was God-honoring, like preaching the text in a space that we'd long to see happen, in the, but it had to do with my motivation. Why was I wanting that? And it came back to me. It's not about him. And you can do this with a whole host of things in your life, even when it comes to parenting, right? You've got your kids, you're in a busy intersection, and all of a sudden you're, or you're on a sidewalk and you're about to walk over and you're just like, hey, don't go, and then there's a car that zooms, zooms by. That's good. That's called stopping your kid from dying. Really healthy parenting. Way to go. Feels like baseline, but at the same time, solid. Um, now, there is also overreaction. Like at first point, you can say, good, I'm looking out for my kid. But then there's the overreaction, right? And as a, if you're a parent, you know how quick this can happen, where you're just like, what were you thinking? Don't you know we're in the middle of a city? And you make your body real big, and they're like real small, and they're like, oh, and you're like, I'm just trying to drill home this point. And you're like, why am I going so extreme and like overcorrecting in this space? Well, maybe, just maybe, because I grew up in a single-parent household, and I've always wanted to be a really good dad for me who never had a dad, and I just want my kids to finally see that I am a good dad, and so I'm going to overcorrect because every time they fail, it actually is a communication that I'm a failure. Why do I want this? Those are hard questions to wrestle through, but they're important. So look back to your paper. Why do you want what you want? You're not the only one who wants that. Someone else is informing your wants. Do you have a healthy skepticism of your own desires, your passions, that may indeed lead to demonic quarreling? And with that, I want to now turn our attention to how to want the best for yourself, okay? If we're doing a little bit of dissection of what we do want and why we want it, let's look at how, how to want the best for yourself, in the midst of kind of the messiness of our desires. Because listen, there's a lot of different ways to bring about destruction in your life. There's a lot of different ways um, to even go about good things in really disastrous ways, right? The path to destruction is a broad one, but the path to follow Jesus is a narrow one. And James wants to guide us into the path that leads to life. And here it is. It's right there in James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit your wants to God. Submit yourselves to God. 
Now, that doesn't mean fill out like a comment card, putting in the offering box and say, God, you know, I've submitted my wants. When you get a chance, can you peruse those um, and get back to me? No, 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 no. This isn't a Santa Claus kind of framework where you put in your wish list and you're hoping to find it under the tree in Christmas. No, 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 no. Instead, this is a place where we submit our wants to him as a king who is reigning over his kingdom, the rightful heir, the son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one from all eternity past, whom always desires our best. Now we submit that to him and he may say, let's fan that into flame. He may say, you need to get rid of that altogether and actually replace it with this desire. And you know what? We can come with a whole host of responses that are ultimately for our good. And this is why James says we need to come with humility because there's nothing that we are more confident about than our wants. If I just had that, then I would be. If we just had that, then we would be. So confident that if our wishes are fulfilled, we would be okay. And as much as celebrities will tell us again and again when they've reached the mountaintop, they're like, I thought that when I finally won that Emmy or I finally won that fill-in-the-blank or I finally got in this many movies or I had this much of a legacy, then I would be okay. But I found out at the top of the mountain, the air's only thinner and I feel like there's nothing there. I only have up there what I brought from the ground. And yet we think, ah, but they're messed up. <laughs> I'm different. I'm grounded. Come on now. If I get what I want, then I will be okay. Hold up. It takes a ton of humility. And simultaneously, it takes taking your wants very seriously. This isn't like you just dismiss your wants. It's actually taking them more seriously, which is why James says, hey, stop laughing. <laughs> You're like, don't come to my party ever, James. Um, no, but this language of laughter, once again, it's anchored in the wisdom literature where laughter was often just this taking of your sin just jokingly. Like, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. We're going to all be fine. It's all going to work out, whatever. James like, no, it's not. Look at your community. It's destroying itself. Turn to mourning and confession and a place of deep grieving because this sin will not be contained. It's, just, it's slowly eroding the whole community. And so resist the lies of the devil, and he will flee from you. Instead, draw near to him. And why would you do that? Because he doesn't just want the best for you. He wants you. As you are right now. He wants you. Isn't that what James writes when he writes in James chapter 4, verse 5? He yearns jealously over all the things that you're going to do for him. No. <laughs> he yearns jealously over the person you will be one day when you finally get there. No. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He wants you. And he wants the best for you. That doesn't mean it's easy cooking, you know, the rest of your life. I don't even know if that's a phrase. Easy cooking. Yeah, maybe it is. Welcome. You can use it. Trademark. Easy cooking. Um, it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. Sometimes it's going to be really hard. But what it does mean is that he wants you through it all. And he wants your best at the end of it all. Unless we forget. He's already given us his best. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if he's already given us his son... I mean, his son, he sent his son that while we were enemies, while we were sinners, when we wanted nothing to do with God, when we were pursuing our own destruction, that's when Christ died for us. He was already pursuing our best when we wanted nothing to do with him. If he's already done that, if God the Father's already given us his son, how will he not give us all things? Romans chapter 8. 
This is his heart. If we can believe what God in Christ has done for us, then we have an unbelievable, unshakable foundation in the character of God for us. But we also have a framework that if he encourages and he guides his son and his son is willing to go through a cross, that also means we pick up our cross and follow him. That doesn't mean we're without pain or without suffering. To the contrary, it usually means suffering. But the end, this is where faith comes in, the end will be like his end. Resurrection, life with him forever, tears wiped from our eyes. We cry now and we weep with one another. When I weep, you weep. When you weep, I weep. We don't just dismiss pain. We walk through it together because we know there's a resurrection coming. That's why we know he wants our best. That's why we come with our wants and we say, they're yours. I don't even have trust that I want the right things. I know someone else is trying to lie to me all the time, to trying to undercut me. There's whole cultural currents. There's the, the world and its structures that are constantly trying to woo me towards its purposes. I don't want to be a friend over there. I want to be a friend with you because if you've done this for me, how can I not trust that you'll do everything else? And you know what happens? You know what happens? What's different in, about your life when you want God's best? Instead of raging instead of constantly comparing one to another, instead of being in the midst of wars and quarreling and fighting and, and constantly judging one another, instead, this is what happens. When, when we actually want what God wants for us, we become meek. We become meek. You know, there was a, a couple weeks ago, a, a friend of mine, Steve, who came into my office. Um, he's been with Christ Community now for about seven years. He's the one um, unanonymous member of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> we host uh, AA in our space, in the downtown campus space, on Fridays. And Steve actually had the wonderful privilege of leading him to the Lord in one of our actually membership interviews, believe it or not. We're sitting there talking about what the gospel is. And he's like, oh, I want that. I was like, well, I, let's go there. Um, and had the beauty of baptizing him, and he's been in this journey of sobriety for seven years. Now, I've had permission to share this story, just so you're curious. It's like, is this a pastor overshare? No. Okay, so just to be clear. And he came into my office two weeks ago, and we're sitting there, and a huge crisis came into his life. After seven years of sobriety, Steve sits there, and he's like, at that moment, I realized that if I went on a bender, everybody would understand. Everybody would be like, you know what, you know what Steve? Makes total sense. What you just had to go through, man, you get it. Go on a bender-free card. Um, and everybody's going to come with a ton of grace, and we're totally going to get it. And he said, the temptation to just get lost in alcohol again had never been so strong as in that moment. But in that space, as he was pondering what to do next, he's like, I'm going to tell you this. I don't tell this to a lot of people because I'm afraid they're going to think I'm crazy, but I'm going to tell you because you're also crazy. No, because you're a pastor, and you believe that God actually works. And I said, cool, let's talk about it. And he said, in that space, it's not like I heard it, but it was like right above me, I heard God say, if you don't drink, I'll take care of you. And in that space, he's like, I trusted him. He's like, God didn't do that for me for the past seven years, but in that moment when it was way too strong, and oh man, it felt so alluring, he met me in that space. And he's like, I don't have an anticipation that God's always going to meet me in that exact same way. But, but, but. He met me there, 
And in that time, I started thinking about this extra margin I have and how I can care for others. And we started spending our time in that meeting thinking through, how can we leverage your time, Steve, to actually care for more? And that's what James is pointing to here. This meekness, this framework where we say, I'm going to get my eyes off of myself, whether it be self-pity or an arrogance. Both of those are a framework of self-centeredness. And look at the we. How can I look at others and come alongside of their needs? Instead of asking, what do I want? When the Spirit is at work in our lives, we slowly shift to, what does God want for us? So I want you to flip over your card, and I want you to answer this question. What do you think God wants for us? What do you think He wants for this campus? What do you think He wants for Shawnee? What do you think He wants for the city, for the world? That is the starting point for the follower of Jesus. To be clear, this isn't just reorienting your wants in the right priority. Instead, it's understanding that God's purposes are bigger than you. They involve the world and other followers of Jesus who may have different desires than you, but they also do include you. Such that when you come to the church, to the church gathered, It's not a space where you just consume and you walk out. Instead, it's a place where you come to give and to receive. There's mutuality. You engage in opportunities to serve one another on a regular basis because you understand it's not just about what I want. It's about what God wants for us and for those who are walking through those doors. It may even mean at work when a job promotion comes up, you recommend somebody else. Isn't that weird? Does that just sound weird to say out loud? It sounds weird to me every time I've said it in a sermon. Like, hey, They should be promoted, not me. What? Well, if they're better at it, and if it's about the whole community and the whole business actually doing better, what would it look like for us to have that level of security and God working in our lives and providing for our needs that we pursue the best of the business rather than just the best of my title? When it comes to education opportunities, not just having a good education seat for your child, but for every child within Kansas City. This is, it's a reorientation that gets it off just me and mine for us. That's what God wants to do in and through the church. What do you think God wants for us? And this meekness is actually on display in James chapter 3, verse 13. They let their wisdom known through their meekness. This isn't just like, oh, Gabe, taking it out of... No, 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 no. The wisdom from above is meek. This isn't... And I'm going to be clear. I grew up in the Midwest. This isn't Midwestern niceness where we don't talk about some things because we can just never see eye to eye, so we just avoid all these top... No, 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 no. You can have honest conversation, actually have good dialogue, and we wrestle through those things together. We're just quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That's also in James chapter 1, verses 19 and following. We come with a level of gentleness, of care, flexibility, and concern one for another. This meekness. You know what meekness means? It means that, hey, if God sent his son to die on the cross for me, and he's done all of that, then surely he's going to take care of my needs. So I don't have to fight for him. Not in the same way. I don't have to, like, undercut somebody. I don't have to go with, like, a blood-curdling scream towards someone. Instead, and some of you are like, I'd never do that. I've seen some people. So here's the deal. Like we lay that all down and we say, God, I trust you. I'm going to trust your way of the cross in every sphere of influence and trust that you're going to give what I need in those spaces to me and to us. So I'm going to surrender that to you. That's that meekness. It's a posture that shapes every dynamic in conversation. 
such that even just like Steve, we might be able to say, whatever it is you're wrestling through this morning, whatever it is you deeply desire, you can say, you know what, God? I'm going to trust your promises, and I'm going to trust you're going to take care of me. So what do you want? Do you know why it is that you want it? Is it what God wants for us? How is that different or similar? Are you willing to submit it to him? Today afresh. Hmm? May God guide us by the power of his spirit in the name of Jesus for the glory of his good name. Amen, amen, and amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am just aware of my own distortions. I'm aware of the things that I say I deeply want. (laughs) And I've seen time and again, even in just my short lifespan, uh, where the things I said I really wanted and you didn't give and I was frustrated, how I was grateful looking back that you didn't give them. How you've actually provided and protected me even from my own distorted wants or even how you've cultivated new wants that are more in line with your purposes. And I know each and every one of us in here has a long way to go. So God, by the power of your spirit, help us to not now focus our gaze on someone else who really needs to hear this message, but instead lay down our own wants afresh. May we be a people who submit to you, King Jesus. We love you. We praise you. Help us. Trusting that you will truly meet us with more and more grace when we come with humility. In Jesus' name.